0: Hi. This is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's
1: Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. You know, sometimes you read a book that just wraps its arms around a subject and puts into words so eloquently the thoughts and ideas you've been stewing on for a while. Well, that's exactly what I thought reading through Hypocrisy, the new release by Rachel Buchbinder and Ian Harris. And guess what? We've got Rachel and Ian on the Zoom to talk about the book today. Now, uh, Professor Rachel Bookbinder has a CV that rivals the size of her recent book. She is a rheumatologist and director at the Monash Cabrini Department of Musculoskeletal Health and Clinical Epidemiology. She is also a professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Preventative Medicine at Monash Uni, as well as coordinating editor of the Cochrane Collaboration Back and Neck Musculoskeletal Division – Chair of the Australian New Zealand Musculoskeletal Clinical Trials Network. She's published over 600 papers, which is more than I've read, and has an order of Australia, and the list goes on and on and on. Ian Harris is Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of New South Wales and University of Sydney, operating at a number of hospitals around Sydney. It's a beautiful town. He has published approximately 300 papers, and his book, Surgery, The Ultimate Placebo, Oh, that is a uh, controversial title. It was published in 2016. He also has an Order of Australia and is known internationally for his research and support of evidence-based practice. And as evidence of his uh, international reputation, he'll be speaking to us from the airport lounge at Sydney Airport this morning. Dr. Amy Page is a clinical pharmacist and researcher. I think she's the first clinical pharmacist we've actually had on the show. She's recognised as a national expert on medication management for chronic diseases. She has undertaken research from big data projects to randomised controlled trials, investigating appropriate medication use for older people. She is lead pharmacist at Alfred Health and an NHMRC early career fellow at Monash University. She is credentialed as an advanced practitioner pharmacist. And in 2015, guess what, Penny? She was recognised as Young Pharmacist of the Year. I'd be happy to recognise as Young Anything of the Year. Amy will be telling us where to find the good oil about medication. So, this is Radiotherapy. Stick with me, Dr. Mal, and my two brilliant, fantastic co-hosts, Dr. G-Spot and Nurse EpiPen, for a full, full hour of medicine chat and a little bit of music. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen.
2: Good morning, and kaboomba. What a humdinger of a show! <laughs> I put that up on Instagram to all my friends yesterday, going humdinger. Boy oh boy, you're this s- is going to be an action-packed show.
1: You're so over all, all the socials, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. We've got you're, a boost. You're like a 16-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're on the Zoom. We've also got Dr. g Spot. Can you hear us, Dr. g Spot?
3: I can. Can you hear me, Dr. Mal and Nurse
1: Effie? We can. I'm going to boost up your volume just a smidge. you. Um, You know, I always give this silent prayer to the universe when the technology works, and you know, we we've got new computers in today, and it's working. It's got to happen. It took. It's taken us about two years over COVID to... Uh, just depend. the
3: entire pandemic. I, yeah. I think, we, you know,
1: We've finally got just it. as
3: we're getting back to in-person, we'll get the Zoom going.
1: Now, we do have a humdinger of a show lined up today, really. I've been looking forward to this show all month. But first, some medical news, uh, Nurse EpiPen.
2: Okay. So, <laughs> at the start of the show, we do a ketchup. No, ketchup, ketchup. ketchup. Ke- oh, sorry, ketchup, ketchup like, like the tomato, tomato sauce. sauce. Okay, yeah. all right. Lordy, lordy. So mine is, (laughs) and I was trying to find something that was really significant. There's been some amazing, amazing things that have happened this year. And we don't want to talk about COVID too much today, but um, my thing is a malaria vaccine. So it's called Mosquirix, and it's a recombinant protein-based malaria vaccine. And in October this year, so last month, the vaccine was endorsed by the World Health Organisation. Now, to have a malaria vaccine is amazing because they've been trying to develop one for a very long time and it's such a big killer in third world countries, mm. malaria. And the um, the group of people that have been involved in developing this vaccine or funding it, uh, so smith Klein, but especially Smith-Kline and French... Uh, the Bill Ga- and Melinda yeah. Gates Foundation, yeah. and its efficacy in its sort of early days is not, you know, we we're happy with this figure. So it's twenty six to fifty percent efficacy in infants and young children. So I just have to give a big shout out to this vaccine, and it's going to do. It's going to be very, very valuable. Um, What's it called again? Moskovitz. It's <laughs> it sounds like
1: a Russian. <laughs> it's like a surname.
2: No, <laughs> Mo- I think it's a bit French. Moss. Queerix.
1: Mosqueerix. Mosqueerix. As in mosquito.
2: Yes. So a lot of vaccine names do start with the bug that they're trying to predict protect. Really? So pneumococcal vaccines, Prevenar, Pneumovax, they start with P. Meningococcal vaccines, often they start with M.
1: Yeah, but that's the bug, but this is the mosquito, this is the vector.
2: Oh, well, that's, yeah, so, well, yeah. True, it's the, but it's, well, let's go the bug, but it causes it's a parasitic bug. infection.
1: The bug that causes the bug, yeah. Yeah,
2: it should be MP something or other. Anyway, that's my catch-up. That is so, amazing.
1: Like, as you say, like, it might be 20 to 50%. We're used to having vaccines now with COVID of like
2: 90, 95.
1: Yes. But even 50 or, you know, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, after, what is it, decades and decades of
2: research. Yeah, over over 30 years they've been trying to develop this vaccine.
1: And they're rolling it
2: out? I don't know if it's – maybe Amy might be able to tell us later in the show whether it's available in Australia, but I would imagine it will go to third world countries first.
1: That is just fantastic news, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's such a crappy illness. Mm. Mosquevix. Yes, Mosquevix.
1: Hey, um, I remember when I was um, a resident at Fairfield Hospital and we got travellers who came in from overseas and – with suspected malaria, and I remember I would take the blood to the lab, and they'd do a full thickness smear on the plate, and I'd get to look down the microscope at the plasmo- plasmodium. Is that the name? Plasmodiums, of the yeah. It was amazing. Like all the stuff I'd been taught in medical school actually existed. It was quite unreal. So,
2: um, and maybe that's a little bit of a segue to the show. Seeing things, yeah. reading things, understanding things, is what helps us picture and understand treatments Mm -hmm. and therapies. So it's, I think, yeah, uh, we're in an um, advantageous situation where in the health field where we can see these things. Maybe we could help people, patients, understand things a bit more if we showed them things. Like where you're showing, like you've got your – and orthopaedic surgeons, you can – jump in here, Ian, if you want, but that where they show the joints mm. and how they're not working and where you want to fix mm. things. Mm. And I think that's part of the education. And um, it's one of my questions to ask to our authors about not only educating patients, but educating doctors the where, yeah.
1: yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That's Great stuff. The- hey, we've got another piece of medical um, news with Dr. G-Spot. I, what... I. I can't remember. So it just shows my memory. It's kind like, of, we talked about this in our production meeting, but I've totally forgotten. What are you talking about?
3: That's a great question, Dr. No. Mal. I'm glad I came to that production <laughs> meeting. It was well worth the time on a Friday afternoon. Um, I'm very excited to report that um, our chatbot kit, who oh, I've mentioned- a number of times throughout um, <laughs> our show in the last year, yes. um, had uh, had their first birthday, uh, so we had a bit of a party on social media this past week. And Kid is the world's first positive body image chatbot. That's we know right. that a lot of people were struggling with body image and eating issues throughout the pandemic, and that continues on. Mm-hmm. And I'm very proud to say that Kid has spoken with over twenty thousand people. That's wait, 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 hang on, a-
1: command bold <laughs> underline twenty thousand people. Twenty thousand. Amazing.
3: We're very proud. It's wow. more than we ever expected. Wow. And we're chatting with some people in other countries now for Kit to travel overseas. Kit's fully vaxxed, <laughs> so, can travel overseas next year and help people in other parts of the world. This, so, it's a very exciting time.
1: Is Kit multilingual?
3: Uh, That's another thing we're working up as well, Dr Mao. So Kit is an English-speaking chatbot currently, but hopefully next year we'll have some languages to add to Kit's repertoire.
1: And just for those who are uninitiated, Kit is part of... The, well, you explain it because you, you designed the whole thing, didn't you?
3: I I was lucky enough to lead this project. Yeah. So if anyone's interested in checking out Kit, go to butterfly.org.au. That's the Butterfly Foundation. And Kit's there as a green pop-up and saying, chat with me. Um, so Kit lives on Butterfly's website but also in Facebook Messenger. Yeah. It's a 24-7 uh, support service um, with evidence-based information on body image and eating disorder issues.
1: And I know we've discussed this before, but why did you give the program? I guess the the appellation of Kit. Why, why that name?
3: That's, everyone thinks it's to do with uh, David Hasselhoff and Night Rider. But I will say that as a millennial, that was not necessarily my first thinking. However, if we can leverage that relationship. David, please reach out. I've reached out to you a number of times on Twitter, and you've ignored me.
1: You've but maybe him.
3: today's the day. <laughs> um, but it was basically we just uh, we went through a load of different names, and, and people really love the name Kit as something short and friendly. And the green character on um, Butterfly's website has been a real hit. So I'm um, really really excited to to see Kit evolve over the next year
1: muzzled off great stuff and i do apologize you. Oh, you, you might record during that production meeting i was flaked out on my bed after a really hard day of work so <laughs> I wasn't that's t- what
3: you said <laughs> I, I don't know i don't know if nurse epipen
1: and i quite believe that <laughs> and a hard day of work for me is what about two hours you reckon yeah, you yeah that's about right <laughs> Very stressful. my coffee was off and everything
3: this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
1: We are um so fortunate to have on the Zoom uh, Professor Ian Harris and Professor Rochelle Buchbinder. Guys, thanks for coming on the show. Can you hear us? fingers. <laughs> yep. Because yep. I mean like both of you have got the same background, which is either you're both staying in, uh, hang on, it's Lago di Como, isn't it? Somewhere in Italy, yeah? Yep. The, they're the staying larger. together. They're staying together. <laughs> is it, is it like Como in the background? Yeah.
4: yeah. Ah. We the book, we wrote the book
1: there. Ah. ah. Do you know? So it's, the
4: it's the Rockefeller Foundation is the building that you see.
1: Just before we get into the book and how much... Um, Well, we all enjoyed it. I've just got to say something. You applied for a a Rockefeller grant to go to this little, or this, this large palace, basically, on Lake Como to do a project. This is about, what, three years ago, was it?
0: 2018.
1: 2018. Yeah. 2018, that email came across my desk and I thought, I'll apply for that fellowship. That sounds really good. And then a mate of mine said, do you know, <laughs> Rochelle Bookbund's applying for it. And I thought, okay, I'm giving up. I'm not even in the competition anymore. So I do know about it. That is an amazing place. And it, it actually, you came out of it with this book. Tell us about the book Hypocrisy. Why did you write it? <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, it. it I guess it, it's fair to say it's it's spun out of another book. Uh, my my first book is um, along similar lines, looking at surgery. It's called Surgery: The Ultimate Placebo, and it's basically a look at the lack of effectiveness of surgery and a lot of surgery we do. So it's a little bit of a you know evidence based uh, look at that. But after that, pretty quickly after that, that was released in twenty sixteen. I. Uh, thought I really would like to broaden this and do a book on medicine in general, um, and uh, I've been working with Rochelle Rochelle and I've been working with her for a long time on you know research projects and other academic things, and so I put it to her, and and she said, yeah, it sounds great, uh, and we had a couple of uh, went on a few uh, holidays and uh, with our respective partners and sort of um you know workshopped a few ideas and and uh um we decided to make it make it work and then it was rochelle who came up with the idea of the academic writing residency and i thought well, we've got no chance of getting that like i i, I looked it up but uh, but anyway we we got it um and uh and uh, unlike the other residents at the time there was artists and other academics there we actually produced something i think most of the other people there were just sort of going on day trips uh, around lake como and uh, and stuff like that where well, we were locked in our rooms in our studios every day and, and actually produced something out of it so uh, but we also had a
1: holiday afterwards so it, it is it is a beautiful part of the world now tell me if you're uh, you've got to be a Courting Controversy. This is the first line, page one. Let me just read it to you. While many medical schools take the Hippocratic Oath, many medical students take the Hippocratic Oath or a similar pledge before graduating, reciting lines like, first do no harm, here we go, we've ended up with a healthcare system that's one of the greatest threats to human health. That's a pretty provocative first line. It
0: is. And it goes on from there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's just the start. Yeah. I mean, the medical system that we have is not fit for purpose. That's another one I think out of the opening
1: yeah. opening line. What, t- um, if you could give us the, the, the points, um, Rochelle? What give us the sort of the dot points about why you make those kind of very sort of uh, uh, sort of, uh, I guess, is it accusatory statements?
4: Yeah. Uh, well, it, I think it's just lost its way. So we have over medicalisation. So medicalizing conditions that that are not real medical conditions,
5: mm.
4: we have over testing, over diagnosis, and over treatment. Mm. Again, um, diagnosing and treating things that will never harm people. Uh, we have the medicine as a business, so um, looking at um, you know more. The more people you see, the more money you make. The more operations you do, the more money you make. Uh, so there are really perverse incentives in the health system that that um, rewards um, seeing people rather than improving their health. It, you know, hopefully it should match, but often it doesn't. Mm. Uh, and and then there are also vested interests and all these other things that compound the problem. And mm. and not enough thinking about prevention and compassion and 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 people. You know, will it really improve
1: people's health mm-hmm. I mean you give so many examples of what you've just talked about now. Um, one that you're, that you kind of led the revolution in was, was, was back pain and, and surgery. Could you tell us a bit about that?
4: I'm presuming you're talking about the vertebral plasty, vertebral plasty,
2: yeah, affair. It's called an affair.
4: That's an injection of cement into people's spines when they have a fracture in their spine. It usually occurs in older people because they have brittle bones. And this procedure of injecting cement in and basically gluing, gluing the fracture, um, had been around for about twenty years. And it became become part of standard care, but there'd never been any studies to prove that it actually worked. Um, and when we started the study, we thought probably it did work, but we were worried about the harms, particularly fractures in in the vertebral bodies above and below because of the change in, you know, sticking cement into someone's spine just sounds so drastic. Mm. Uh, so when we, we did our study and another study in America was done at the same time, and we found that it was absolutely no better than, than placebo. So pretending to inject the cement, people got better um, at the same time and by their same amount. Uh, and we also know that there is a lot of potential harm from the cement. So our study did, did show a trend towards increasing fractures, but we didn't have enough power in the study. Um, but there are lots of case reports of people becoming Paraplegic because the cement leaks out from the um, vertebrae into to press on the cord. Uh, there were uh, reports of the cement travelling to the heart and going right through the heart, and people needing to mm. have an operation uh, and dying and, mm. and and due to pulmonary so mm. lots of potential for harm. And there are now five trials, all have, all have demonstrated the same thing, but. But um, unfortunately, the, the treatment continues on. And, and even I was uh, interviewed by someone on Friday in Denmark that where one of the trials were, uh, which showed it didn't work. But the people who even did the trial still believe it works and still do mm.
1: the procedures. Mm. On, I, I know this because I was just looking at it before. Page 44 of uh, your book, you talk about some of the reasons why treatments that we know don't work are still being used. Could you, could you could you run through those for us? Because I found that particularly fascinating from a psychological point of view.
0: Yeah, um, a lot of it is because we practice based on um, a lot of uh, human uh, ways of thinking in that if we see people get better after we treat them, hmm. then we tend to attribute that improvement to what we've done. And that's a very human thing to do. It's it's normal for this logical fallacy of post hoc ergo propter hoc. You know, it follows therefore it is because of. That's a that's a heuristic or a shortcut that's been wired into humans, which got us you know evolutionarily as far as we've come. But uh, it's not very scientific, and it's a little bit like um, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking, Fast and Slow as well. And if you took vertebral as an example. And you said to somebody, "Oh, your vertebra is crushed because uh, the bones are soft. We're going to put cement in there and harden it." You go, "Fantastic, great!" Mm. You know, without thinking about it, how how could you know? No problem. Mm. But when you actually think about it, you go, "Well, what if the cement leaks out? What if it makes it too hard and it actually causes damage to the other things? And what if the person was going to get better anyway?" Uh, you know, and then you go, "Oh, hang on a minute, maybe it doesn't work." Um, and it's the same thing, and and with a lot of what we do um we're no different to alternative medicine practitioners homeopaths who see people get better and homeopaths believe in what they do because they see people get better and we we tend not to uh, the opposite is because we believe that we tend not to believe high quality scientific studies that were done somewhere else by somebody else um a classic example that I often use is knee arthroscopy, where you know, a very high quality placebo study was done in Finland. And the surgeons in Australia were like, well, I, I don't know, these guys are like, they must be hopeless or they're, they're different to me, or the patients uh, over there are all different. You know, they're not, not the same as Australian patients. So it's, it's very easy to dismiss that kind of thing and to say, but when I treat people, they tend to get better. And that's what I used to think as well. Mm. Um, And what happened with me very early in my practice is I used to see my knee arthroscopy patients in the anesthetic room just before going into surgery, mm. and I'd say, "Oh, how are you going? You know, how's your knee going? Really good. Yep, yeah, no problems." Mm. <laughs> and, and I'd say, "Oh, uh, uh, so like, <laughs> is it giving you any pain?" "No, no, no. It's been really good." Well, uh, why are you here? <laughs> 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 kind of like, yeah. Well, you know, you booked it. And I thought better have it <clears> just in case. And uh, and and there was just all these patients who were just getting better, being on the waiting list,
1: um, and that kind of jogged me into thinking maybe there's something else to this. That's, that reminds me of one of the professors at medical school used to say the tincture of time. It always, you know, that, you just sprinkle in a bit of time and it can actually make a big difference. EpiPen.
2: Um, so one of my questions is around research. And I think you sort of alluded to it, Rochelle, talking about you didn't have enough power to show a difference. in, And so hence power to determine whether mm-hmm. the effects were from chance or they were real. Um, doesn't get published and then and so that's one little part of research the other part is getting a negative study so it's not what the researchers predicted and then we and then they don't get published because it's a you know it's a negative study and you infer in the book about publication bias so my question is around are we doing better with publication bias in the sense that we, we as researchers want to get the papers published so it develops, becomes part of the um, evidence-based care that we give patients. So in a roundabout question, my or roundabout way I'm trying to ask about publication bias, is it still existing and has it improved?
4: I think, I mean, I think there are several answers to that question. I think publication bias itself has improved uh, and the Danish study that I was telling you about before was finished in 2014. We got a hold of the PhD thesis, it still hadn't been published when we published our review combining all the trials. And eventually, eventually, um, I think, because of the pressure um, on the first author, it was eventually published, you know, six years later. So I think the publication bias is getting probably less but the other problem is there's now so, so much terrible research and it's much easier to get published and you can publish it without peer review. Um, there's predatory journals that you can get your work published in. And so it's just noise. There's so much noise there and, and we know that a lot of research, up to 80% of research, might actually be wasted. Hmm. I think it would be much better to publish you know, to only do high-quality studies and make sure they're published and to stop all this duplication. And, and I have a rule that if the, the number of reviews of trials is greater than the number of trials, then the treatment doesn't work. And, and the classic example is platelet-rich plasma injections for anything. There's a zillion reviews all saying it's wonderful. But if you go back and look at the trials, the high-quality trials, show that it's no better than placebo. And, and so there's a lot of vested interest research being published that that just, um, you know, publishes what they believe and, and spins the results to make that look like that. And, and that's part of the problem is that you can always find research that supports your beliefs. It's not hard to find research or papers that support your beliefs because of the lack of science in medicine.
1: Mm. that well that's yeah. that's that's part of the university system isn't it the, the 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 pressure to publish you've got to pump out those papers you've got to get those grants otherwise you're at risk of losing your position so you know it doesn't you know quality whilst it should be at the forefront isn't necessarily always because you got to you got to publish I often, you know, that, sorry
0: that's, that's why everything gets published there's so many but the, the numbers of publications per year are Skyrocketing, even the number of journals mm. uh, per year is is skyrocketing, and you can get anything published. So I don't, I don't, I agree with Rochelle. I don't think publication bias is is the problem that it used to be. Uh, and in fact, uh, in the surgical community, there is this um, feeling that the major journals um, are anti-surgery because the high-quality studies. Tend to show that surgery doesn't work, and high quality studies get published in the New England Journal and the, the Lancet. Mm. Um, and so there's been actual editorials written on the bias within the New England Journal of Medicine against surgery. Wow, and I believe it, yeah. I don't because they only publish studies that, that show it doesn't work, and I think the problem is that. It's just so happens that all the high quality studies that have been done, like all of the placebo studies in surgery in mm. recent times, have shown to be ineffective. Mm. So um, that's I think that's the problem, the problem is with the the um, evidence supporting surgery, mm. the problem isn't with the bias of the journals. Mm.
2: So let's take it back to the patient on their journey to see a specialist. We go to a GP. How the dickens do GPs keep up to date with all of the information? So, my question is do we have an understanding if GPs dedicate half a day where they go and read as much as they can and then be brought up to speed? So, I would like to hear from the, you know, what is happening at the GP level. Nobody here is a GP, but I think that's the start of a patient's journey. And they have some responsibility to filter out and educate and talk to the patient about all the possibilities. And is do you have any, a sense of what happens there?
4: I think it's really hard for us to say because neither of us are GPs so we don't want to GP bash.
2: Yeah, yeah.
4: It's, I think it's fair to say GPs have to know an incredible lot about yeah. an incredible wide range of things and, and a time for so I think it's incredibly hard to be over mm. everything, and, and really need to try and help GPs to work out what is good, good good evidence or good advice and bad advice. And that that you know I think that's that's changing. Um, they need to get have the right information at their fingertips at the right time, and, and things like living guidelines that we're doing now. Um, that are available at the point of care, I think, will be crucial. And we also need to educate the consumers and the patients so that, so that together they can actually ask the right questions and, and patients can encourage GPs by asking questions and, and vice versa. So I think it's a really hard thing to, you know, to get right. But I think that GPs can be so easily misled mm. You know, a good example from our field is radiologists writing things on imaging reports suggesting more tests or image guided injections, um, both of which are probably unnecessary, inappropriate, cause harm. Um, but GPs don't have any way of know of filtering to know, well, is that evidence-based information or not?
3: I, I love hearing your thoughts there, Rochelle. And I'm actually wondering, as we were saying, GPs have to be across so much information all the time. Is it about teaching them how to critically appraise information rather than all of the information? Like so that they always have the tools to to decipher whether it's, you know, between the wheat and the chaff. And I'm sure that is taught in medical schools, but maybe that's something that we need to focus on more. Uh, yeah,
4: I think I mean I think that's a crucial thing. But it's also really hard when, you, when you're confronted with so much noise, working out which is the right thing to read, and then having to critique that. Um, so I think we, we need to give GPs the tools so that, so that maybe someone else can do that for them and, then, and tell them where the, the best information is and that they can trust um, that's up to date, that's, that's based on high certainty evidence. Um, but it's in, you know, it's incredibly hard. I think so um, we don't want to, you know, when we don't want to reduce the trust in in our GPS, um, but we just ho- the whole the whole society has to move towards having a better understanding of science. I think.
1: Yeah, like a typical doctor, most of my friends are doctors, and probably half of them are. Oh, there's occasional nurse, Um <laughs> um half of them are GPS and. Uh, I'm I am staggered by the amount they have to know everything from when a little baby comes in the room to when an elderly person comes into the room from you know mental health to inf- you know infections, uh, and they're incredibly time poor. They are you know, like rushing patient to patient to patient to patient. So I think it's having that high quality information, but it's having the time and the space that just the headspace to be able to incorporate all that new information that constantly gets updated. One of the things that intrigued me in your book was the time it takes for new medical practices to go from super, super, super hardcore, absolutely incontrovertible evidence to practice. You gave a figure of years to that, didn't you? Ian, Do do you remember I read that it was 17 years Why does it take so long to go from evidence (laughs) to practice?
0: Uh, Yeah, it does. I mean, if you just look at, you know, a landmark study or some, you know, great study, the definitive study on something that's been done, you know, by the time the study's done and it's even written up, you know, you're talking about a year later, you're talking maybe six months or a year uh, before it gets published, uh, and then it gets debated and then maybe there's another study um, and then nobody believes it and then somebody has to champion it uh, and, um, and then it makes its way into guidelines um, and then we have to wait for the next study to come out. Yeah, it just takes a very long time. But I was talking to an uh, uh, academic on in another interview just recently and he made an observation. He said, yeah, he finds that it varies a lot. Mm-hmm. And he said, when there's a study that shows something uh, new works, he said, tends to get into practice straight away. Uh, there's really no delay whatsoever. Um, but when a, a new study shows that something doesn't work, uh, it takes decades for it to mm-hmm for practice to Mm. change. So there's a a little bit of, you know, these sort of hidden incentives Mm. in our practice um, that that probably influence that statistic.
2: Um, Just a quick question to you both. What's it been like writing a book like this, personally and professionally? And I'm referring to some of the backlash you've received. Rochelle?
4: (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, firstly, it was fun to write the book. Um, we learned a lot. We had, I mean, we we just you know, we're just a rheumatologist and orthopaedic surgeon, but we wanted to write about a range of things in the book, and we had to check all the facts, and and so that was that was a bit stressful to make sure that we actually got the right balance and we had our facts right. Um, but we had a lot of fun doing it, uh, and and we have had both of us have had backlash. Uh, I think more for me. Um, partly because i'm female that might explain at least some or mm. a lot of it uh, but but when you go and look you can see that lots of people um, have had have experienced things the same way as we have and we write that in the book um, even the covid people who were you know epidemiologists have had with the um, threats and intimidation and harassment so i think if if we're publishing evidence that doesn't fit with people's beliefs, and maybe there's uh, finances involved, or egos, or reputations, then then people uh, tend to take it out on the on the messenger, who, the messenger, who gives,
5: yeah. and
4: not the not the messages. So I think that's been, you know, that's been happening to me now for twenty years. So I'm mm. I'm used to it, and I just, you know, I just ignore it. I try to ignore it most
1: of the time. You know, one of the examples that you give of, of an Australian who basically changed the face, changed the face, changed the lining of um, uh, gastroenterological research was, <laughs> is Barry Marshall. And, um, you know, both EpiPen and I were working in gastroenterology 25 years, like a long time ago. And that's actually where we met. And, you know, when his study came out about bacteria causing ulcers, I mean, that was just such a headspin. Like, really, bacteria? No, no way. No way. And uh, as you write in the book, when he first presented his paper to be published, it was rated – it was rejected. It was rated in the lowest 10% of papers. Twelve years later, he's won a Nobel Prize for, like, you know, world-changing paradigm-shifting research. And also, uh, to me, to my mind, it shows that when – when an evidence-based idea comes along, people will just refute it because it just doesn't fit into the paradigm, even though there's solid evidence. Why do you reckon that is? You know, when solid evidence comes along, people just go, "No, nah, can't, doesn't fit in." I mean, you talked about vested interests, but it's, is there a psychology? Do you reckon?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, that it's not it's not just medicine. Uh, this goes in, in, you know, physics and any any yeah. scientific endeavour. If you challenge the the status quo, uh, you tend to cause a a backlash you know people dig in and and believe even more uh, that they're right and um, and that's part of the reason getting back to your previous question on why practice change takes so long um, there's so much gets invested in this way of thinking um, and there's really good examples of um, you know branches of science and uh, cancer research that have developed based on false mm. research and then in order to unwind them or, or, or you know, wind them back, uh, it's, been, it's been very difficult uh, because all these things have sprung up and ex- people have become
1: experts in this this area, which is based on a false uh, premise. Mm. So tell us, how do we I- – I want people to have faith in their health practitioners because you- you've got to trust somebody um, yeah. because otherwise it's just this huge pool out there of conspiracy theories and dodgy websites and social media – how do how do you how do you walk that line with this book about saying, hey, look, you should trust medical people um, enough so that you don't go often to that other sort of nether world of, of conspiracy theories? Were you conscious of that?
4: Yeah, we're very conscious of it. And hmm. I mean I think we just want people to be a bit more skeptical. And in both of our training we've done clinical epidemiology where we where, you know, we they, the tutor says Find a problem, a treatment that is well known and, and well accepted and go and find out how, you know, what the evidence is for that treatment. Mm, and mm. my first brush with that was looking at a um, aquanil a hydroxychloroquine for lupus That mm. everyone was on that for lupus. It's supposed to be helpful to, re, you know, mm. save their lives. And it was based on a book where there are about seven cases described by the the um, doyen of lupus at the time, and and based on that book and his experience of seven patients, the world, you know, everyone's on Plaquenil, and it wasn't until um, after we found that I was living in Canada and the Canadians actually did a trial where they, they um, randomised people to stop it or not stop it mm. in, a, in a blinded way and found that it, in fact, did it work. It, it actually mm. did, um, you know, stop flares. Mm. Um, but it, but if you go back to see how what was, that was based on, you find that it was not based on anything really. And and a lot of the things when we look at surgery in particular, it's like what you said at the beginning. It makes sense, you know, you want to show them how it mm. works, but it's very simplistic. It's it's it may not actually make sense. It may mm. it may sound really good, mm. but unless you actually test it, mm. um, it may be totally wrong. Mm.
0: And I guess we want people to recognize the biases that exist. So it's been fairly well documented that doctors, and again, probably no different to other fields of endeavor, is that doctors tend to overestimate the effectiveness of what they do and underestimate and overlook the the harms and the unintended negative consequences. And so, yeah, it, it is a fine line. We want to say to people, well, doctors are the experts. You know, don't just believe anything you read. But you also have to understand that that doctors are fallible. So you yeah. have to be a little bit questioning yeah. when you interact with doctors. Yeah. And and so, definitely go to a doctor. Don't go to a homeopath. That's the first thing. Because and I, that sounds flippant, but um, a lot of people actually interpret our message incorrectly as being our oh, medicine is wrong therefore uh, alternative medicine is right and we're, we're not saying that at all um, so what we're saying is is go and see a doctor but um, just be a little bit mindful of these biases and, and maybe ask for the evidence mm-hmm. um, if you're in doubt ask for a second opinion from another mm-hmm. doctor if it's a big decision you know th- these are the things that you can do to to get to the truth, to get to the best answer, uh, without looking elsewhere.
1: Well, we're going to ask both you, uh, Ian. Um, I think you're at an airport lounge in Sydney. Is that right? Uh, no, I'm at home at the moment. Oh, okay. It's hard well to tell. With, it's hard to tell with that background. <laughs> just, so. I just made it. Yeah. <laughs> and Rochelle, we're going to ask you if you wouldn't mind hanging around.
3: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the R website or your favourite podcast platform.
1: We are very, very pleased to have on the show the young pharmacist of the year 2015, Dr. Amy Page. G'day. Amy.
6: How are you? Thank very... you for inviting me to be here today.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming along. Where's your background? Our listeners can't see your Zoom background, but what is it?
6: Uh, that's just the view out of my kitchen window. Uh...
1: You've got sheep in, your, in a suburban house?
6: Uh, I'm in rural Melbourne, if you believe such a thing exists.
1: <laughs> really? <laughs>
6: Out in the Dandenong Ranges.
1: That is absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Now, um, you are here to tell us about how we choose medication wisely. I mean, that's how, how do you even begin to do that as a consumer if you don't know anything about the medication you're taking?
6: Great question, because the hardest thing of of all is to ask questions about what when you don't know what questions you should be answering asking really
1: well yeah so what do you tell people when they say how do i how, what do i where do i start google
6: yeah, there's actually really good resources on the NPS website for choosing wisely, yeah. um, which actually give you five questions that you should be asking every time you're considering taking a new medication or a new test or treatment. So that's actually probably the best spot to ask because they're just five standard questions that you can always ask.
1: Um, oh, hang on, hardest- hang on a second. Hang on a second. I really want to know what those five questions are. What are they?
6: Let, uh, I knew you'd put me on the spot. I was thinking I should have googled it before I uh, said something.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could try and guess. Um, do I need it? Uh, where do I get it from? How much does it cost? What are the side effects? Side
2: effects, yeah.
6: What, is there uh, ever- is this is there rec- rec- evidence for this? Is it the best treatment? Or what will happen if I don't get the treatment? Ah, yeah. Um, because as Ian and Rochelle said earlier, you know, it's not always that you actually need treatment for something.
5: Mm.
6: Um, mm. So sometimes not taking something is actually safer. Mm. Um, and I guess that's really something that's becoming more and more of a concern because we've got more and more people taking multiple medicines as far as from a pharmacy perspective we've Mm. got more and more people taking five or more medicines every year um that number is you know it's about a third of older people depending on how you actually count how many medicines somebody's taking that are taking five or more medicines each day and it's really easy to escalate that number of medicines Uh, really really quickly
1: yeah i had an idea call me stupid that you know how we you know when you prescribe you prescribe a medication like like you say to patient you say to nurse epipen start taking this on monday you also have a stop date you know so like you know with antibiotics that's easy because that's like seven days or 10 days or whatever but if it's like a a more longer term one you say well maybe we won't stop it in a month but we're going to review it in a month does that happen
6: not often enough. There's actually a really big push for that to happen. So in the field of deprescribing, which is where a lot of my research has been, that's actually, the, which means uh, the process of actively stopping a medicine in consultation with a health professional.
1: Deprescribing. A, wow. Yes. Great term. There's
6: actually a really big push for people to be putting a stop date or at least a review date on every new medicine. Because there's so much that happens that we just forget to go through that process Mm -hmm. at the other end. Um, We did a piece of research looking at whether doctors and pharmacists made the same decision about whether a medicine should be continued or not. And it was so funny, those ones where it was really clear cut, that it was stopped or started, they were fine. But the ones where it wasn't clear cut, it was... So that was where our decisions differed. And so many of the times where the decisions differed, it was based on the fact of, well, they're honoured at the moment and they're stable, so maybe we just continue it because everything's okay at the moment, so why make a change if we don't need to? It was that perception that continuing the medicine was a passive choice, that there was no decision made in it, whereas stopping the medicine was an active decision.
1: If it ain't broke, don't fix it type of thing. Like, why change things if everything's going along tickety-boo? Yeah,
6: Yeah, we really need to change that mindset that every single time a medicine is renewed, whether that's through dispensing a medicine or re-prescribing the medicine, that it's an active choice to continue it as well as an active choice to stop it.
2: So, Amy, as a pharmacist, if a doctor, say for an example, is prescribing an antibiotic for an elderly person in a nursing home and they've just left them on the antibiotic, do, where is the role or responsibility of the pharmacist to ring up the GP and say, hey, are you aware that this person's been on amoxel for two years for a chest infection that was two years ago? What, what, What's your role in that?
6: That's exactly the role, what you've just described oh. <laughs> the problem is that too <laughs> the problem is that too often the indication isn't put on the script or isn't easily found so in the randomized controlled trials we've done of the prescribing where we're actively making an assessment on every single medicine to ask should this medicine be trialed for deprescribing so much of the time we can't find the reason why somebody is on a medicine and when you can't find the reason why they're on it it makes you really hesitate because how do you question if they need it when you can't actually work out why it was ever started you question yourself
3: Um, Amy, I was just wondering, is that the reason why pharmacists take so long when you, like, put in your script and you can see that they've, like, they've got the medicine just there and they just need to put it in the basket? Like, is that what they're checking? I've always wanted to know. Yeah,
6: so it's double check. It's not just the data entry, but uh, checking that the stock is there and putting the label on the bottle. It's all the other stuff to check that that's actually the right medicine for the right person at the right time and that there's a reason for it. Um, checking that there's not any other drug interactions that are clearly there, those sort of things as well.
1: So how do we go from this notion of deprescribing? Is it going to take us 17 years to get from the <laughs> idea of deprescribing to actually, you know, every time now I go into a chemist to get a script filled, you know, it's that will be the thought of... Of my entire healthcare team, you know, they're going to huddle around this notion of deprescribing. When's that going to happen?
6: Well, funny you say that, because the first paper that used the word deprescribing was published in two thousand and three. So we're about ready for (laughs) that to happen now. Then
1: (laughs) we're a year we're a year past it. (laughs) Uh, What gets in the way of that? Is it? I mean, what systemic factors get in the way? You know, what can we do?
6: There are so many systemic factors, but one of the biggest ones is the idea that everybody thinks somebody else should be doing it. So there was some (laughs) research that came out of Sydney that was saying, uh, I think this person should have their medicine stopped, but the GP said that it's the specialist's job to do it. The specialist said it was up to the GP. Mm. The pharmacist said it was up to the GP Mm. or the specialist. Everybody said that it should be being done, but not by them.
1: That's that famous study. Um, it's the, it's what was it called? The um, dissolution of responsibility. The more people you have at, I think it was at a car accident or something, they did, the, these researchers did this study, um, the less likely somebody was going to step forward and do something because everybody thought everybody else was going to do it. So, how do you combat that problem? Do you say it's the prescriber's responsibility to do it? like if the if the specialist is prescribing it then it's their responsibility if it's a jp it's a jp's responsibility i mean how do you figure out whose responsibility it is
6: that's the million dollar question um but it's the problem is that we i think we need to move to a mindset where every single time that script is renewed that it's that person who's renewing the script or deciding to continue it that it is their responsibility if and if you're the patient. Or if you're the consumer at that point in time that you're actually asking too rather than just expecting that it's going to continue indefinitely because you've been on it
1: uh, Rochelle you've got a question
4: yeah I was going to say that we see this a lot in um, you know in rheumatoid arthritis that you know you have to look at making sure that patient's cardiac risk factors are looked at and we have the same problem you know who's responsibility and I remember Ian wrote in the book about multidisciplinary care. So if you have cancer, the the best care now is just getting multi multi people together, and they can have a look at a case and make it the best decision for the patient. Everyone's in the room and they've they've all made they've all contributed to the discussion. So how do we get that into the healthcare system? Because we're all in our little silos, sitting at different mm. places, and the communication issue is such a big one, isn't it? Mm. 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 Yeah, and you really
6: just need to almost have it lucky that all of your specialists or DP and or whoever pharmacist whoever it is just happen to turn up at the same time if you if it's in the hospital system or that you can get everybody around the table for a case conference if it's in the community, and that's rare that that happens.
1: I reckon incentives. Incentives are always like you know <laughs> carrots. <laughs> Karen, like I, I used to, I used to give my um, this is years ago. I used to hand out Fredo frogs oh. to um, my registrars if they could um, tell me a mistake they made during the week, because yeah. nobody wants to admit to a mistake. So you know, the incentive was I'd give you a little chocolate treat if you told me, not that to diminish um, de-prescribing, but surely there must be a way of incentivising it.
6: Yeah, and I think you know it's that. Famous argument, too, where you've got the uh, cardiologist advocating for My somebody God. to have fruzamide and the nephrologist uh, not wanting people to have fruzamide, too, right? Yeah. Um, there's the benefits and harms, and if we're looking at it through a single lens, it's really hard to actually work that out. There was a study done a few years ago where they asked 120 older people that were at very high risk of. Falls, actively falling, and also had very high blood pressure. And they asked them, What would your, be your preference? Do you want to reduce your risk of having a heart attack by taking a blood pressure medicine, but it's also going to increase your risk of having a fall? What would your preference be? Mm. And it was about half of them who said they'd prefer to take the antihypertensive, and half of them who said they wouldn't take the antihypertensive.
1: Th- I mean, that is just such a great example of giving patients the choice, <laughs> you know, like they're the person taking the tablets, you know, let them have the choice. I think you know, there's this sort of um, uh, the, the patriarchal system, not patriarchal, the um, hierarchical, The you no, know, when you tell somebody to do something, not patriarchal, paternalistic, paternalistic idea is just so old fashioned, you know, give patients the choice. And we think, yeah, that, that is fantastic. So that's one thing we can do. I'm very conscious of the time we're about to run out of time. Oh my goodness, we are. I better rush. Um, Amy Page, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, It's great to have you here. We're going to talk much more and more about it. Thank you so much to Rochelle Buchbinder and Ian Harris for coming on the show too. Great talking to you guys. Good luck with the book. The book's called Hypocrisy. Go out to your bookstores and get it. Thank you, Dr G-Spot, for coming on the show all the way, zooming across from South Australia, crossing that border, hard border, soft border, not quite sure. And thank you, Nurse EpiPen. Hi.